0: based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash eppendorf to apply today. This is a science podcast for November 25th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, I interview journalists and scientists that published in Science and the sister journals. First up this week, artificial intelligence beats the game diplomacy. Freelance science writer, Matt Hudson, joins me to talk about the advances needed for an AI to cooperate with humans, using dialogue and to strategize to win a game. Next, we discuss how much water people actually need every day. Researcher Herman Ponzer talks about recording water turnover from about 5,000 people around the world and how the data show water needs vary person to person and place to place. Now we have Matt Hudson. He's a freelance science writer based in New York. We're going to talk about a new achievement for artificial intelligence, winning the board game Diplomacy. Hi, Matt. Hello. I hadn't heard of this game before reading about the study. Were you familiar with this game Diplomacy?
1: I've never played it. I had some friends in high school who enjoyed it. Yeah, and it's been around for for decades and apparently Kissinger and JFK were fans of it.
0: Yeah, my partner also had the same. He he played it in high school. He was in a club that met once a week and what he said about it was, you know, the rules don't change. There's no chance in this game. There's no dice rolling and you need seven people to play. So it's really the terrain changes because the people change. There's a lot of negotiation and conversation. So is that kind of what makes it so different than other games that AIs have taken on before?
1: Yeah. And I think it involves a lot of kind of subtle management of relationships with other people that can perhaps spill over into real life. I just talked to someone who said that he was a fan of the game and he's lost some friends playing it because there's a lot of uh-huh. backstabbing in the game. You're just lying to people's faces saying, okay, let's make this deal. And I, I promise if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And then the next move, you just don't do it. it Lead doesn't hurt feelings.
0: Yeah, I love that. There's a negotiation phase. I read about the game and then there's a reveal when everybody at the same time says what their move is going to be. So there's not like you, you know, a lot of these turn-based games where you watch someone's actions and then you make a decision. It's all at the same time. Do you want to outline just kind of the basics of how this game works?
1: The game board is a map of Europe and everyone controls one country and you're trying to take over as many territories as possible. There are various supply stations and then you have uh, army and naval fleets and you're sort of building up your fleets and trying to take over the territory. And each round you negotiate with other people if you want. You can say, like, okay, I will support you in this attack on this other player if you then later support me in this other thing. And so you can either decide to attack other people or you can support other people's attacks of other people. And then once you've done all this negotiating, then you make your moves and that's the round.
0: So listening to that, it is kind of surprising that an AI was able to not only participate in this, but also win against other players. What did they have to do to get an artificial intelligence to participate in something like this?
1: Yeah, it's very surprising. So AI has done pretty well in other Domains Uh, in strategy games, for instance, it can beat people at Go and chess and poker, and in certain video games, also like Dota 2 and StarCraft. So it's pretty good at strategic planning. It's also pretty good at language generation. So we have models like GPT 3 that you can ask it a question or start a story and then it just continues. So it can write things that seem very human like. But diplomacy, the game combines those two. So you need to reason strategically and then you need to explain your reasoning or based on your plans, converse with other people. So it's not just imitating what other people might say in a game. It's forming language that's grounded in intentions and in planning. So combining those two is is very tricky.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Was this created the way we've heard other AIs have been through massive data sets? It Takes them all in and it finds the patterns and then it reproduces those patterns?
1: Yeah. So there's machine learning involved in, in which computers find patterns in data. Uh, and there are at least a couple of kinds. Part of it is just imitating the way people play, both their moves and their language, which kind of gives it a, a jump start. And it also makes the AI behave similarly to humans because if it's going to need to cooperate with people, then it needs to, if it does things that are very odd or, or very alien, then other people will just be confused. And you know it's, it's kind of hard to, to collaborate.
0: Right, they're not gonna trust it. They're not gonna think that it's gonna be a good player.
1: Right, and then it also uses a form of machine learning called reinforcement learning, in which it plays copies of itself. And that allows it to improve beyond humans. So it's not just copying what people do, but it can find new strategies on its own. So it combines those two things to sort of surpass people, but not diverge too far from what people do so that it can still collaborate with them.
0: How exactly was this AI facing off against people?
1: There are websites in which people can play online against each other. And they entered their algorithm called Cicero in these tournaments to play against other people. And it outperformed about 90% of the players online.
0: Wow. Wow. Were they fooled into thinking that it was a human player? Or did they know it was an AI?
1: Most people seemed to think that it was a human player. I guess there were a couple of comments from people saying that, you know, this seems kind of like a bot, but for the most part, people didn't really question it. So presumably most people thought they were playing against another human.
0: How often was the AI backstabbing people in this game?
1: It was pretty honest. It realized that if it was too deceptive, then it didn't perform very well. So it had to find a happy medium because people would distrust it otherwise.
0: Yeah. My experiences with AIs is eventually they stop making sense. There's just certain areas where you, if you're talking to one or you're asking it to figure something out for you, there's just some nonsense. It just can't help itself. Did that happen here?
1: No, because they tried to make it not diverge too much from what people would do. There are other situations in which you have another research, algorithms will just play against copies of themselves and they kind of form new strategies or new conventions or new languages that work for them, but they're just completely alien to the kinds of things that evolve in, in human culture. So then if a person were to watch, they just wouldn't understand what's going on. Uh, but here they try to remedy that by comparing it with what people would do and penalizing it if it strays too much.
0: So we should mention that the AI that is involved in this is actually from Meta, the makers of Facebook. Why are they interested in having an AI that can beat a game like this? So this
1: is from a a part of Meta that does sort of basic AI research. So they weren't necessarily thinking about particular applications, although there are applications, but they're just sort of seeing it as a fundamental problem in AI getting AI to be able to reason strategically and to communicate with people or with other kinds of AI. So it's not like Meta saw some business application for this and and they wanted, you know, bots online to do X, Y, and Z. They just fund a lot of basic research in computer science and getting computers to be more intelligent.
0: So are the kinds of applications for this setup, though, are there things like Being involved in diplomacy or some other like real world situations where an AI could help people strategize and cooperate?
1: Yeah. So you might have an AI agent stand in for you in negotiations, things like bargaining for better prices for airline tickets or booking reservations for you, or going all the way up to international diplomacy or political debates over budgets where there are two people who have different interests. You could have an AI that kind of stands in between them and and finds ways for both parties to cooperate when they have competing interests, but also uses language so that both parties can understand
0: what's going on. Do you see this as a big step forward for artificial intelligence? I tend to be on the cynical side of (laughs) like thinking that, yeah, okay, in this very narrow case, it does well. But do you feel like this is a big step? That's the sense I got
1: from talking with people, both one of the Authors of the paper at Meta, Noam Brown, who has also done some great work on poker, and then also talking with other researchers who looked at the paper. So Noam mentioned that after his great success with poker, he started working on this in 2019. He thought that it would take a decade to perform this well. It kind of seemed like a sci-fi scenario. So he was really surprised that in just three years, it's doing this well.
0: Anything besides diplomacy that you see as a an outcome for this kind of uh, AI?
1: Yeah, there are a few other potential applications. One thing that a couple of the outside sources mentioned was that they work on health applications, either getting people to exercise or to eat well or to take medications or to engage with a therapist. So those are also situations in which there's kind of a mixed motive. There's cooperation and competition. So you and your health app might share the high-level goal of Making you healthier, making you exercise. But in the moment, it might want you to exercise, but you don't want to exercise. And so it has to find some way to negotiate with you to convince you to do something. So, any application where you have a, an agent, an AI bot that is trying to achieve some end, has some purpose in mind, and then it has to find the language to achieve that purpose. And it might have to think several steps ahead. i have to say, well, I'll say this. And then you know, what's gonna happen down the line. I also wanna think about what I'm gonna to say to say later. And there are also some risks involved. Uh, anytime you have an AI that tries to achieve some end, it can, whether through accident or the use of someone with bad intentions, it can convince people to do things that are harmful to themselves. It can lead to financial scams. It can talk people into giving them money or it can manipulate political discussions. So you always have to think about both the pluses and the minuses.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Matt. Sure. Matt Hudson is a freelance science writer based in New York. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Herman Ponser, a professor in the Department of Evolutionary Anthropology and the Duke Global Health Institute at Duke University. We talk about what it actually takes to be hydrated. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Gnomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Gnomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. You might have heard that you should be drinking eight glasses of water a day. This seems very high for me. I'm not that into drinking water. But this idea of one amount of water for every person on the planet being the preferred level of consumption, this recommendation doesn't appear to be backed up by data. Herman Ponser and colleagues published a paper in Science this week that looked at water turnover and more than 5,000 people from around the globe. And they found a great variation in how much water is used by people daily. It depends on the person, the environment, a bunch of different factors. So Herman's here to tell us all about it. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Thanks for having me. Sure. I want to know the answer to this question. How much water do people use in a day? This is just as a personal like water enthusiast type interest, but What made you decide to ask this question as a scientist?
2: Our bodies require water. You can't go without water for more than a couple of days without dying. So it's a really important uh, nutrient to have beyond uh, the risk of dying. You know, people don't do as well. Our bodies aren't as healthy. We don't do as well if we don't get adequate, safe water. And, And, you know, there's 8 billion people on the planet today. Some huge percentage of us don't have access to clean water. So this is a big, important issue, not just in our own daily lives, uh, listening to these podcasts, but but probably also globally as well.
0: So why don't we know this already?
2: <laughs> it is kind of surprising, right? This is sort of something that we should just have down as basic knowledge that everybody should be <laughs> should understand about themselves. Well, it turns out it takes a little bit of effort to measure this well. So we have a really good technique that we use in this paper where we actually track isotopes as they sort of pass through your body. You drink some isotopically enriched water. We measure those isotopes as they leave your body. That's a really precise way of measuring how much water is is sort of flowing through your body, into and out of your body every day. That's what we want to do. But that takes time. It's not cheap. And so, you know, most of the big studies on this have relied on just asking people how much they drink.
0: Self-reporting is not necessarily, you know, people don't remember.
2: That's right. There's huge problems with self-reporting. So, you know, um, it's not a bad way to start, I suppose. But we know, for example, that self-reporting for how much people eat is really off most of the time. And so we think that's probably the same problems with how much people drink.
0: People are also not going to recall what they drank last Tuesday. They might know what they had this morning, but that's it gets harder the further in the past.
2: Yeah, and, and it kind of combines itself. So you know, we, we have all been told that we eat 2,000 calories a day. So if you ask somebody what they eat, they will magically (laughs) recreate 2,000 calories a day worth of food. And if you ask what people drink, we know we're supposed to drink eight glasses of water every day. And so people will tell you, you know, a figure that often sort of recreates that because somehow we know that that's what we're supposed to do and that clouds what we report.
0: So we've talked a little bit about this measurement, water turnover, I mentioned in the intro, and you kind of described it when you got into your technique a little bit there. It has like a specific meaning. Can you talk about what exactly you were measuring when we say water turnover? Yeah. So
2: water turnover is all the water that comes into your body and all the water that leaves your body day to day, right? And usually those things are balanced. So usually the amount of water that you eat and drink and that your body actually produces on its own through metabolism, that all those sources of water input match all the water that we lose through sweat and urine and the water vapor we breathe out and all that stuff. So, so that's water turnover.
0: If you got someone to drink labeled water and then you measured how much left their body you were basically estimating water turnover
2: yeah it's a really precise way to measure water turnover because we basically dose a person with isotopically enriched water that's like food coloring right so yeah you can imagine putting food coloring in a bathtub and the bathtub will change color and then we turn on the spigot and we open the drain and we watch the color in the water and the tub will change Right, It'll, it'll get less and less dark as that food coloring flushes out and new uncolored water comes into the tub. We're basically watching the change in color of of the bathtub when we measure your isotope enrichment over over time.
0: One thing that I think it's really important to bring up here is the diversity of your sample. I mentioned it's a big sample of people, about more than 5,000, but you also looked at different ages, genders, and locations. Why was it important to kind of sample so broadly?
2: Right. Well, we know that, you know, humans have a really diverse set of lifestyles. You have city dwellers, you have people who hunt and gather for wild foods, you have people who farm their foods, people in hot and cold climates. So, you know, humans are diverse. And we wanted to capture that diversity in this data set.
0: I noticed there are quite a few more women than men in this data set. How did that end up happening?
2: Well, so the way that this whole project happened was that labs all over the globe, including mine and a a bunch of others, all pooled our data using this technique to make this really big data set. It happens to be the case that a lot of these data come from people studying nutrition, studying, you know, things like obesity, those kinds of issues. And for reasons that are sort of larger than this study, those studies tend to over-recruit would be the word that we use, over-recruit women into those studies. So we end up having a sort of over-representation of women. It wasn't intentional in the way that we built the study.
0: Okay. So when you got measurements from this big group of people, you end up with kind of a range of water turnover and it varies by person and location. So how does this range that you measured in this diverse group of people, how does it stack up with eight, eight ounce glasses a day, which is like two liters of water a day, that recommendation we discussed?
2: Most people are not going to need a drink eight glasses of water a day, two liters of water a day. Um, If you measure how much water flows through your body, how much water comes in and goes out every day, there's a lot of variation, but it's something like three to four liters a day total. And that includes not just the water that you drink, but that includes the water that's in the food that you eat. It includes the water that our bodies, our cells make themselves. Your body actually makes water during metabolism. And so, yeah, of course, we need a drink to be part of that total, but we don't need to have two of those three or four liters be uh, just from the water we drink.
0: That's really interesting. What were some of the extremes that you saw in the data? Was there somebody who needed a ton of water every day?
2: Well, we have people in this data set that are drinking lots of water. The total water turnover is you know, eight or nine liters a day. And a lot of that's going to come from drinking the water that they drink. So some people are getting a lot and we see that in athletes. We see that People living, you know, physically active lifestyles like farming in warm climates. So, you know, there's the things that you would sort of expect to increase how much water you need is what we see in this data set.
0: What about some of these other variables that you looked at? You looked at, for example, you know, where on the planet someone lived, you know, whether they're in an urban or an agricultural setting. What were some of the important variables you saw for water turnover?
2: Sure. So body size is an important one. Bigger people need more water. That's the main reason that men tended to use more water than women. If you are a physically active person, and that could be because you're an athlete, or because you're maybe you're farming, or you're hunting and gathering, you're out every day. You're you're getting a lot of physical activity. You're going to need more water in warmer parts of the globe and in warmer seasons. People need more water.
0: Was there any surprise in there for you and in what you guys found? I
2: think the big thing was just how these all these contributions come together. So we know that people, for example, underreport how much. Food they eat, people tend to underreport the calories they consume. Well, that has a knock-on effect in two different ways. In thinking about water budgets, because the energy that we burn creates water, and also the food that we eat, it has water in it, right? Nobody eats entirely dry food. And so, when you when you underestimate how much you're eating, you're actually underestimating those sources of water too, and you're thereby overestimating how much you need to drink. And so by kind of being able to disentangle this, because this data set has data on energy expenditures as well. So we're able to disentangle that in this data set and say, yeah, obviously everybody needs safe access to safe drinking water, but we probably don't need the eight glasses of water we've been told.
0: Besides satisfying my urge to hear all common wisdom debunked, (laughs) this information has broader, broader applications. Like planning for resources. So how would this work? You know, I mean, it's a little dire to say, so we have 8 billion people. Now we can figure out exactly how much water they need. But that is kind of the direction this is going in, right?
2: That's right. We can now know for rather than just having data where we ask people how much water they need, we actually have data on how much water they, their bodies are actually using. So we have a much more reliable, precise way to sort of make those plans. And the other big piece of this is we see just how important Temperature is right, and so in a warming planet, right, and the places that are people are most at risk of not having access to to safe water, we can kind of factor that in because we didn't have a a really good handle on that before. This is going to help with that kind of planning as well.
0: What more data would you want to collect to better understand water consumption, where it comes from, and, and how how much we need
2: to really break down even further? How much water people are getting from their food, from the water that they drink different kinds of beverages, different kind of lifestyle elements. We'd love to have more detailed data. A data set like this, you've got literally thousands of people from across the globe and that allows us to have this really well-determined sort of overview of what what the body needs and all these different factors. But now the next thing to do is to to go back down, kind of go small and ask, okay, if we're going to get a really detailed view of of water intake across populations, across people, we're going to have to focus in a lot harder on the details you know, what I really like about this study is, you know, this is a real win for collaborative science, right? These are a bunch of labs that didn't have to work together <laughs> to do this. There's, there's no, for example, in genetics research, you're required to put all your genetics data in these large databases. That's not a requirement for us in our field, but we just thought it was important to do that. And so, you know, it's a real win for in a, in a world that seems kind of polarized and nobody wants to work together. It's great to be part of this big collaborative effort.
0: I have something I call a while I have you question, because I interview researchers, I interview science writers all the time. And this is a very basic one because I'm just getting started. But do you read sci-fi and does it relate to the kind of work that you do?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I don't read sci-fi.
0: Yeah. Do you watch the movies? Uh, Some.
2: Not tons. I mean, like it depends on what level, you know.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a real Dune type situation here where we're like... (laughs)
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the obvious connection. And I did watch Dune and I haven't read Dune. I'm told, oh, you have to read the book and I probably will at some point. But yeah.
0: I mean, do you? It doesn't really go into the water science so much. I mean, that was the one thing I was wondering though, is why wouldn't we have figured this out for astronauts?
2: Oh, but see, here's the thing. If you're an astronaut, first of all, they recycle all their water. So as long as there's enough up there, who
0: cares? (laughs) like You get what you get when you're up there.
2: (laughs) That's right. That's right. And because, you know, that's actually a really great example. So this is a closed system. The amount of water that you lose has to be equal to the water that you gain. And as long as you keep that system closed, as long as you close the loop on that, if you go up with basically enough, you're fine forever.
0: Yeah. So we don't need to know how much you need to go to space. We just have to get it right enough. That's great. Okay. Thank you so much, Herman. Oh, sure. This is really fun. Herman Ponser is a professor in the Department of Evolutionary Anthropology and the Duke Global Health Institute at Duke University. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A A slash join.